This is a MacKillop Farm Management Group podcast. We acknowledge and respect the traditional owners of the ancestral lands, Potterwich to the north, Jawajali to the east, Bowen Dick to the south and Meetung to the west of the Limestone Coast region. We acknowledge Elders past and present and we respect the deep feelings of attachment and relationship of Aboriginal peoples to country. Welcome to The Prosperous Farmer, a podcast telling the stories of farmers in the Limestone Coast and Western Victoria. I'm Meg Bell and today consultant Cam Nicholson and Coombe farmer Rodney Lush are joining me to discuss stock containment feeding and the trigger points for implementing containment feeding. Welcome Rodney and welcome Cam. Cam is a leading agribusiness advisor and is passionate about boosting profitability and productivity, providing advice on animal and pasture systems and decision making. He and his wife Fiona run a beef and sheep farm on the Bellarine Peninsula, turning off cattle for the long-fed feedlot market and sheep for fine wool. Rodney farms with his wife Sally and son Jeremy at Coombe, producing loosened seed, lamb and wool. Their farm production system is based around centre pivot and flood irrigated loosen and rain-fed perennial pastures. He also provides farm business advice and supports support to clients in the Mallee, Limestone Coast and Western Victoria as a consultant with Pro Advice. Rodney, can you tell us a bit about how you got into farming? Well, it was a bit of a, a natural progression, Meg. I grew up in Inman Valley. My dad was a fourth generation farmer or grazier there and always had an affinity for the land. Studied at Roseworthy back in the day before Adelaide Uni was there. But it was the old Bachelor of Applied Science in Agriculture. Well, while I was there, I think we bought the farm at Highfield at Coombe in 1987. Dad put a lot of thought into succession and had three well four kids and knew at least two of them were going to go farming so started looking elsewhere for land and and we purchased that block in 87. I did some artificial breeding between sort of 86, 88, 1990 and then when Sally and I were married we finished our honeymoon at Coombe and been there ever since. (laughs) I bet you enjoyed that honeymoon location. (laughs) We did go via the Great Ocean Road. Very good. Tell us a bit about your farming business. Has it changed a bit since when you first started? Quite a bit. We took over the the farm. It didn't have any irrigation at the time. So we've developed irrigation. We've done a lot of refencing to soil types and topography. And recently we've purchased another farm on the other side of Keith at Sherwood. So, you know, where my bio said... Uh, nothing about cropping. We now have a, a reasonably significant cropping enterprise for for us. So we're now about 40% livestock and predominantly sheep, 30% cropping and 30% loosened seed. The sheep are a self, self-replacing merino flock with the bottom 60% going to terminal size. There's been quite a transition there from being a single, single labour unit, relying on contractors for labour and machinery, and in recent years, as Jeremy's come, come into the picture, two plus labour units now, and we're, we're fast accumulating machinery, and for the right reasons, uh, to be more efficient and, and timely, and have a bit more control over, over what we do. What does the cropping side of your business look like? It varies from Coombe to Sherwood, but at, at Coombe it's largely based around renovating loosen and chicory pastures, both dryland and irrigation, so predominantly cereals with perhaps a bit of canola. Where the soils permit, we're quite sandy at Coombe with uh, no clay for clay spreading, 
Over at Sherwood, it's a different story. There's some quite quite solid ground over there, and there's plenty of clay for improving the soils. So we're just doing a bit of amelioration over there and learning how to drive a new car, so to speak, and uh, can grow most things there. So we, we've still got our, oh, we're probably off our L plates onto our P plates now and, and just starting to get some traction, I think, yeah. Yeah, excellent. You've been using containment feeding in your business. Can you share with us a little bit about why you decided to start doing that in your production system? I guess I had a bit of a, a groundhog day in November 2014. We'd had two failed springs in a row, two summers of really marginal landscape conditions, difficulty with livestock condition and performance. And in 2014, it was like, here we go again. Am I, am I do I want to do this again? We, uh, we were talking about it probably late November and we decided just to ring up our fencing contractor and see if he could fit us in to build some containment pens and we had them finished by Christmas, had sheep in there early in January. You know it's been a bit of a, a learning journey for sure, we've made some mistakes but we've had a whole lot of gains out of it. Now it's, it's another tool that we have that we're probably still exploring to, to its fullest extent, you know, some, I was just thinking on the way down, you know, we've traditionally contained sheep in autumn there's opportunity there to contain sheep in spring when conditions are really good and put that growth to, to another purpose. It's been pretty valuable. What went wrong in year one? We're using feeders. We thought we had our, our intake okay. It, it all measured up fine number of sheep, well no, uh, cubic metres of grain times bulk density divided by the number of sheep equaled 500 grams tick. Righto, we're into it. And then we had some scanning to do and I distinctly remember bringing the sheep in and it was all fine and by the time we got to the last mob we were starting to get sheep down in the yards. The stress of bringing them in uh, was, um, yeah, not, not pretty. So that was probably a bit of a, a wake-up call. I'll talk a bit more about how we avoid that later. Grain poisoning is probably the main main one. We've, we're over that now but we did have one event where we had four pens fully stocked. Everything was going well. Then we had one pen sheep started dying and it was ended up being a bacterial infection and the other pens were fine, no deaths but we just had to get the sheep out of pen one, treat them all with antibiotic and eventually they stopped dying like it was serious we, we probably lost 10% in the pen mm. and that's no fun for anyone you don't like to see a sheep going through that there's some negatives there but by far and away positives outweigh outweigh that can you Rodney describe for us what your containment setup looks like and what you think the advantages and disadvantages of your setup are certainly so we've gone for four 50 by 50 pens and they're serviced along one side by a, a 25 by 200 metre raceway. The pens are designed to hold 500 sheep, which they do quite comfortably. There's two feeders in each pen, and we have a, a two-inch water supply from a, a gravity-fed system that's dedicated to the to the feedlot. We also have a circular water supply so that 
there's water coming from each pen, so pen four doesn't have to wait for pen one, two and three to finish drinking. They, they all get water at the same same rate. So I think it's uh, in our situation it was important to have that dedicated supply so that when you know, if other animals are drinking or we've got all the sprinklers on at the house, there's still water at the feedlot. Solid ground, good drainage, and we've got a, a system where we just we can drive along a fence and with the seed and super unit hang the augers over the fence and fill fill the feeders just with one pass up that raceway. It seems to work quite well. We probably could have a bit more shade there, but that's that's a work in progress. In terms of the advantages, you know, we're seeing improved ground cover, increased persistence of perennial pastures and, and increased production from those pastures. That's a, that's a function of rest at the appropriate time. And I reckon we're getting more uniform livestock production from year to year. So our sheep, you know, if, if they need to be in containment, they're fed properly and condition scores are maintained or managed as required. And so, our, you know, our lambing rates have been relatively consistent and um, you know wool production relatively consistent so we don't don't get those fluctuations like we used to the feeder system i think works well for us because we're a self-replacing flock and we pay a lot of attention to training our ewe lambs onto feeders so at, at any time we can put uh, a mixed age mob into containment and all the sheep know what the feeder is and and so there's no, well I won't say there's no shy feeders but the the risk of having a, a significant tail of shy feeders is vastly reduced. If we if we were buying sheep in it probably wouldn't work as well because every year you'd have to train sheep up but um, we just like to keep it simple and it, and it works quite well. If we're looking to keep our rates of grain down so if we were in a say a drought feeding situation would probably struggle to keep our our rates you know low enough we can we can achieve 500 grams okay but once the sheep get get the hang of it and they've they've been in there for a while they do tend to work out ways of getting more grain out we may need to look at something a bit different if we were you know you know prolonged grain uh, prolonged drought situation where cost of feeding just keep sheep you know, maintained was was the primary objective, mm. because we're lambing in sort of autumn. We've generally, got some irrigation to put sheep onto. We're, we're, it's that that autumn rest that we're looking for to build a feed wedge ahead of ahead of lambing. So we've got sheep on it that, that require a rising energy level in their diet. So you know, as they learn to get a bit more out of the feeder, that that works well yeah. for their you know pregnancy stage and and nutritional requirement. And Rodney, what role do you think containment feeding provides in managing your enterprise during dry times and drought? You, you kind of touched on it at, mm. at the start and maybe we haven't had too many really dry times since you put the containment lot in, but have you got a sense of how you think it will or, or might be able to help you in future? Well, I beg to differ. We've had, you know, we've had some quite dry autumns and summers at Cooman because we are in a sandy landscape. We do have to have a tool in the toolbox to take the foot off the accelerator pretty quick at times. And the the containment pen and having sheep 
uh, trained onto feeders means that you know if we can spend say two weeks getting our sheep acclimatised to barley before they go in, we can get you know usually get sheep into containment within within a fortnight. Just having that tool in the toolbox means that we know we've got a place for them to go. They're not going to damage the farm. The pastures are going to get rest when they need rest, and we're not at the whim of market forces being a forced seller and then a, a, a forced buyer in a you know sometimes fairly hotly contested marketplace when it does rain. Cam, as an agribusiness consultant, you've worked pretty extensively with grazing and cropping farmers, mixed farmers, on understanding risk in farming and approaches to decision making. And I know you've got a long-standing curiosity as to why people make the calls and, and decisions they do and why people make different calls. Why is it important to understand how we make those decisions and what stands out to you about farmers who make good calls at the right time? Yeah, interesting question. It's actually a double barrel one, I think. I might take the second bit first. I reckon the, the, the best farmers I see follow a process in their decision-making. Some of them do it consciously, so they're actively managing the steps, if you like, on the way through. Some do it unconsciously, I suppose, but are good at it. And when we did some early work in the Grain and Graze program and we interviewed farmers that we saw were what we thought were leading farmers, they all followed a process. Some of them didn't recognise it, but when you ask them, how did you make that decision, how did you go through it, they followed a process. And that really got me curious. What was the process? Is there some way we could learn that? When I started consulting, and this is many decades ago now, I'm not going to tell you my age, but <laughs> many decades ago, a wise dairy consultant down in Gippsland said to me, the only difference between the top 20% of farmers and the rest is their ability to make good decisions more often. It's not because they get more rain, it's not because they've got more equity, better soil, it's none of those things. They make good decisions more often on a regular basis and over time that accumulates and that separates them out from the rest. So that's probably the first bit of it, it's the process bit. The second bit, why is it important? You know, we, we make lots of decisions every day and they can become habitual and there can be flaws sometimes now that I've learnt the process there can be flaws in that process and if you're not aware of that and you're not conscious of it you keep making the same mistakes and so I see people repeating the same thing time and time again you know just because we make decisions doesn't mean we're good at making them and I think that's something that sort of resonates with me that the more conscious you are about I've got to make a big decision here let's follow a process the better off you'll be. It's all well and good to say that the top 20% of farmers make good decisions and make them more often, or, or make them often. How can we learn about how do we get better at making good decisions and make sure that we're undertaking a good process to do that? Yeah, well, I think the number one thing is to recognise that it's a skill. And like any skill, you can learn it, you can practise it, and you can get better at it. And importantly, you can be advised, coached, you know, whatever word you want to use, to get better. You know, and I often use a, you know, sporting analogy. When you first start off in a, in a new sport, you pick up a tennis racket, cricket bat, whatever it might be, first couple of times you do it, you're pretty average at it. The more you practice it, the better you get. And if you've got someone looking over your shoulder and giving you um, some you know, advice or some, some tips on how to get better, you get better at it. And all of them have techniques. 
you know. And so I think just becoming conscious of it and actively seeking what can I do to actually make, you know, use a better process. I did a, some work over in Western Australia and a farmer came up to me and she said, you assume we know how to make a good decision? She goes, I've never been taught. You know, and when you reflect on it, I've been taught how to read, how to write. You know, and I can think of starting from you know, picture books to then you know, a few words on a page to stuff that you're reading in year 12. So, so there were processes, there were steps that we used, mathematics and all of those sort of things that we are taught over time and we practice and we get better and people help us get better at it. Decision making, we just assume we can do it. And when I ask people that, when we are taught to make a good decision, if I've ever got a group of people in the room, the only ones that ever put their hands up are the ones that have been in the armed services. Because okay. they've actually been taught that's part yeah. of their training. They go in and they are taught under pressure, this is how you make a good decision and here are some processes you can use to do that. And I just find that fascinating. But for the rest of us, we just hope it works out. I thought you were going to say something like when they'd had a really bad something happen and they had to make some pretty <laughs> swift decisions to get themselves out of it. <laughs> well, well, sometimes they can do that and, yeah. and it works out and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. You know? and, and look, there's always exceptions to the rule. If I use a sporting analogy, golf and cam, it doesn't matter how much I practice, <laughs> how much I get coached, I'm still hopeless at it. But, but in most cases, it works pretty well. Yeah. So what information or tools or resources other than, than practising making those decisions are, are out there for, for farmers to access or use to help them make good decisions? At a farm level, we pulled together a lot of the stuff that came out of the Grain and Graze program in a book for the GRDC called Farm Decision Making. And that's a easy to read guide that picks up, I think, what some of the, the critical factors that influence your decision. Now, I talk about the head, heart and gut of decision making. We talk about risk in that. We talk about how your personality influences the way you naturally make decisions and therefore becoming more conscious of, OK, I'll do this easily, but I don't think about this. So that's a resource. It's on the JRDC website. And we've recently put some things together around some of the decision-making stuff, videos, tips, little tools and things like that. And then if you want to get really academic, there's people like Daniel Kahneman, who I think has got some great stuff on the theory of decision-making. You know, he's a professor at Princeton University. He's, he's published lots of books. He's won a Nobel Prize on his work on this stuff. And he really, you know, boils it down to, he calls it, you know, thinking fast and slow. He basically says, we make decisions too quickly. And if you just follow a bit of a process and it just slows down your thinking a bit, it'll make an enormous difference to the decisions you make. How do we know if we've made a good decision and how do we know if we've made a bad decision? <laughs> How do we? Uh, hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> it can be a pretty cruel teacher. I, yeah, I separate out... Look, everybody wants to make uh, the right decision and they want to make it all the time. The reality is that in anything, and agriculture is no different, in fact, agriculture is probably worse, we have to make a decision with a whole lot of uncertainty and we've got to roll the dice and we've got to hope that it turns out the right way. So I think what's important is we separate the difference between a right decision and a good decision. And to me, a good decision is an informed one. So at the point where you have to make that decision, have we considered all the things fairly? Have we balanced those up? And on balance, are we making the sort of decision that we should be making? And then hopefully it goes right. 
more often than not, it will turn out right. And that's my opening comment about the top 20% of farmers. That's, when you study them, that's what tends to happen. They still make mistakes. They still try and make the right decision and it goes wrong. And I've seen people that I would have thought, gee, that's a bad call. And just the way the cards have fallen, it actually worked out all right. <laughs> you know, so you're not going to get it perfect. But the more you put a process to it, the more likely you are to get it right more often. Cam, in an environment of changing climate and the need to make good decisions at the right time, what do you think are the drivers to boost profitability and productivity? I think they're going to be the same ones as we've used in the past. And in my mind, that's good science. And what's, I suppose, concerning me a bit, in the last five or ten years, there's been a, a bit of a push to encourage adoption of some practices that aren't that are more based on, if you like, the heart and the gut rather than the head. And I see this, I'm doing a bit of work in the soil carbon space, and I just see some of the claims and some of the things that are being suggested in that space. And people are making decisions on that and making some very, what I think are significant changes to the way they're operating their farm business. If you put that through the decision-making process that would have the head, heart and gut in it as well, the science bit of it, the head bit of it's <laughs> lacking in a lot of cases. But, and, and so that process would still hold for, you know, that I'm talking about would still work very well in that situation. From a climate point of view, the way I look at it is that, yes, climates might change in certain environments, but just recognise that there's someone else somewhere in the country that is already farming profitably in the environment that yours might change to. So it's about adaptation and it's about adapting and using the right options and making the right changes to keep that business profitable rather than chasing things that really don't sort of stack up. And so I, I think good process, chasing information is really important. How important or how widely do you think people use that decision-making process when it comes to containment feeding? I think it's driven more by gut. And it's interesting, we've been doing these, what we're calling trigger point workshops, and we've really focused on how do you make this, or what, do you, what information do you use to make the decision to put animals into containment? Uh, and then there are other decisions about releasing them out of containment, decisions around should we sell stock rather than put in containment. So there's a number of different decisions there. As we've worked through them, there is a lot of commonality but I haven't found anybody that's, if you like, picked up the whole suite of considerations. Mm. So as we've worked in these small workshops, we get some great ideas, but I've had ideas from Tasmania and I've had ideas from New South Wales that when we go to Victoria and I suggest them, they go, oh, that's a good idea, I hadn't thought of that. Mm. So it's, from a containment point of view, it's understanding what are those critical factors that we should be considering. And I think we can learn a lot of each other because different people will have had different ex containment experiences. Rodney's, you know, it's got some great examples there. And so his contribution will be useful for someone in New South Wales or Tasmania or Victoria or whatever it might be. Mm. And so that's what we're trying to do with the trigger point stuff is to bring that together and say, look, here's the suite of critical things you should think about. Some of them may not be applicable to you, but some might. And that's the starting point of making a good decision. Rodney, you've heard Cam talk about decision making. 
and explaining that sort of process. Do you think you follow that on farm and do you think you, you have been following a process to make that decision about using your containment lot and when, when you use it? Partly. We might be skewed towards the gut in the, in the <laughs> Venn diagram of decision making. There's a lot of observation around that and we know how rainfall's tracking and how our loosened pastures are performing and the recovery after grazing and you know we'll we'll know in October and and perhaps I should have a, a trigger rainfall for say September and October that said right oh they're going in if we don't reach this amount that that's probably getting to a a bit more of an objective measure there but I'm, I guess I'm confident in our system once they're in and I know that when I pull the trigger it's going to work. We mate from the 11th of November, uh, haven't mated in containment yet and probably would avoid that if I could. So we've, we've, got, some, we've got some constraints at either end. Nothing's ever, you know, absolutely objective. There's always, well, the gut the head, the heart, a good heart one. Uh, we shear in January, we've moved from from July, which is not much fun, to January, which is a good time to shear, except that often our sheep need to be in containment. Mm. So the heart says, well, I don't really want my wool full of dust. Um, sometimes the head says, well, history would say it's better to have your sheep in early and protect your environment than, than um, have lovely clean bright wool so this year the the head's going to override the heart and they're going in yeah can i just jump in there Meg? because i think that's what rodney said is you're dealing with quite a complex decision because there's a number of things to weigh up mm. and some at different times have more importance than others some you can do calculations so it's very much ahead the number says such and such therefore i should do and then there's the ones that like the wool one, it's a classic one. And so weighing those up and balancing those up is really important. I would suspect if I sat down with half an hour with Rodney and probably with Jeremy as well, he would be following a process. Yeah. He would be doing a number of these things that I'd be talking about that are, in a sense we've tried to formalise, but they would be doing it anyway. It's more about recognising, hey, that's what we're doing and here's, uh, here are just a few steps that can actually help us enhance that even further. That's where I think for a lot of farmers is where the, the decision-making... Uh, making lots of decisions, they wouldn't survive, they wouldn't be profitable unless they've made a lot of good decisions on the way through. You know, with the amount of risk that is in our businesses inherently, because we're farming in a you know, biological system. <laughs> so they're doing it pretty well. This is just looking at, well, what's the enhancement on top of that? How can we top that up? Rodney, what do you think your key learnings and tips are for other farmers considering implementing containment on farm? Meg, probably the, the foundation of all of this is just understanding what your sheep need nutritionally. So a lot of our decisions are made on lifetime new management principles. Once, you know, once they're in containment, you know, what energy intake, you know, what's the NDF of the hay, how much can they eat? Then you know, it goes back to Ken Solly. And I still enjoy chats with Ken. You know, there's a number of a number of different, you know, uh, key points that he he puts up. But I think you know, once our sheep go in con into containment as a dry sheep, we supply them with eight megajoules of energy a day. 
from a mixture of hay, grain, whatever, and, and for our sheep, that's probably enough as a dry sheep. But as soon as they start putting on or d developing a pregnancy, you know, we can be up to 12, 14, 15 pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So we do have to keep a, a close eye on that. Uh, I mentioned the, the importance of training, training our stock onto feeders. So just particularly bless this autumn with, with green pasture feed. It's, it's fantastic. We haven't had an autumn like this for some time, but I've still got 600 2022 uh, drop ewe lambs or ewe hoggets now in the feeder or in the feed lot, and they'll be there for another three or four weeks just so that they've all got the message this is where the grain is, you don't have to rush, you don't have to gorge, just you know, when you want it, it's there. So uh, that's, that's a pretty cru crucial uh, step in our success. Probably the you know, there's the no-brainers like the, the uh, three-in-one or six-in-one, whatever you want to use, but the clostridial disease vaccinations, drench. We do use buffers, perhaps, when they first go into containment, just for a first week, just to mitigate that grain poisoning risk to a degree. And the other thing is that I just can't overemphasise over over the importance of just being there regularly. So we, we would have a system where one day we go in there to wash the troughs, the next day we'll go in there to feed hay and add, add some minerals. So we're there every day, take a walk through the sheep. Regular presence certainly calms the flock. And you also get a chance just to observe the demeanour. So if they're all standing around with their heads down moping, you know there's something wrong. Uh, similarly, I've nearly got a degree in, in uh, manure <laughs> observation, so you know you want to keep a close eye on that. If, if that doesn't look right, if you haven't got pellets, you know if there's a lot of runny manure there, you know you've got a, a bit of a looming issue. So um, you know if, if you if you miss several days, things can amplify pretty quick. So it's just regular observation. I mean, as farmers, you know, often say that we're actually paid to be observant. Mm. So just get out there and observe, and if it's not right, it'll, it'll smack you in the face, you'll, you'll see it. Yeah, they're, they're probably the, the main things I reckon, Meg. A bit of a different tack now, Rodney. You're a member of the McKillop Group, and you're also on Lucent Australia's Executive Committee. How do you think being involved with, with our group and, and with Lucent Australia benefits your business? Hmm. Had a good think about this one. Um, Jeremy's also recently come on on the board of McKillop, so um, that's that's encouraging for the organisation. There's quite a bit of um, next generation talent coming through there. But I think uh, we've always been open to hosting R&D, uh, being involved in field days and the like. These two organisations are both quite active in the R&D space and, and from our business's point of view it gives us a chance to perhaps look over the, over the horizon a bit in terms of radar, what's next, what's coming up, who are the people that are working on some of the stuff that might be relevant to our business. So we're, just, we're in, in amongst that uh, research thinking, futuristic thinking, maybe some of it's left field and totally... Uh, you know, out there, but some of these things might actually have an impact on our business in the future. Most of what we do 
has a significant impact on our business in terms of, you know, say the Loosen Australia trials on irrigation stress. Variety trials this year we may, you know, we may have a bit of a look at plant growth regulants. There's, there's a whole lot of work being done on blue-green aphid resistance and seed wasp and the like, which all have a significant impact on our business. So it's quite a bit of a, an over-the-horizon radar position. The, the other thing that I think about is that it's a, a good way to be involved with people who think outside the square and not necessarily think the same as I do, but think outside the square, maybe even a di in a different spot to where we're thinking. Um, contacts, knowledge, and I, th I think if I was to you know, sum it all up, it probably helps us stay in, in the early adopter space as a business, because we're getting, you know, we're seeing the research, we're seeing the, you know, some of the harebrained ideas that, that, you know, we think, oh, might be good, but then it falls over. Oh, glad we didn't touch that one, but uh, we see it filter through to an early adopter stage and then we can apply it at our business. Um, those two organisations are quite good and, and out at Sherwood they've got a quite, quite a solid little group going there which we're part of and um, enjoy that, well, that uh, camaraderie and, and some of the thinking involved there and, and there's you know, quite a solid level of trial work out there going on too which we're certainly adopting. Yeah, it's excellent, excellent to see people motivated to to host some of this work on their farms because without that real world check-in it wouldn't make any sense to do do mm. any of it yeah. yeah so Rodney what's next for you on farm um, for you and Sally and Jeremy well in, indeed the whole lush family really because we are in it together my uh, eldest daughter's teaching at Mount Gambier and, and my youngest daughter's a vet science student so um, you know we're we're committed to regional SA, regional Australia, agriculture, etc. But um, we're sort of in, a, in an interesting space. There's a, there's a fair bit of transition going on from a personnel point of view. Jeremy's, Jeremy's come into our business and he brings energy and knowledge. We've, we've had, a, had a, you know, an increase in scale and, and as I'm sort of perhaps... In the, th in the sort of final quarter, perhaps, of my farming <laughs> career, or maybe late in the premiership quarter <laughs> camp, I don't know yet. You know, there's an importance in, to transfer knowledge as we go, and, and it's been a really positive time for us. You know, we don't always... I don't say, see eye to eye, we're very calm, but we're getting really good at talking mm. about stuff and, and working through stuff. That whole transition phase is good. Sally's, um, Sally's opened a bookshop in Keith and, and that's been a, a wonderful thing for her and for the town and the community. And, and that again, that's a transition from a, a, a teaching career into uh, something that, that, that builds on her wellbeing focus in her career. So through all of that, we're looking to capture benefits for the whole family. And if I was to sum up the business side of it I think you know our challenge currently is to try and match our business turnover and profit with increasing asset value we're doing that you know maybe some could say better or I, I don't know but at the moment um, we've still got areas of our business that we can improve on and we're looking to improve on to help match the turnover and the profit with the you know the the asset value rise that we've seen so 
all the while adapting to the conditions that present themselves in any one season or year. I'll have to visit the bookshop next time I'm in town. <laughs> you should. You should. Beyond Words Bookshop. That's my one <laughs> free plug. <laughs> I'm sure she'll be pleased about that. Cam, I'm going to pose the same question to you. What's next for you as a consultant and as a farmer? As a consultant, I'm really enjoying this space, the decision-making risk side of things. And in fact, I started off in agronomy and soils and I did... 25, 30 years of that individual advising and I think with what I've got left <laughs> helping people in that decision making and in that structuring the way you make those decisions I think is, is I'm probably going to make more contribution in that space than you know, doing trial work or doing other bits and pieces because I, I think the, the universal application of that and the ability to keep applying it year after year after year in different situations whether it's decisions on containment feeding whether it's buying the block of land next door whether it's replacing the tractor or whatever it might be if we can improve those a bit i think that will make a big difference to farm businesses on our own farm we're applying best practices best we can found my wife runs the farm day to day I don't know if she wants me back on there day to day I think she enjoys me being here and she being over there but yeah oh look I love the, the farming I mean seriously when when farming goes well it's the best job in the world if, if you can't like when you have a good season and, and prices are good and you look around and think this has got to be the best job in the world you know it is just fantastic and I love that feeling yeah. and we all recognise that there are times that are, are tough and as long as we make the best decisions we can then you know we'll get on with it because there will be good times around the corner again. Great note to end on. Thank you both so much for being here with us and sharing your insights on containment feeding and decision making and life in general. We have some links to those resources that we've mentioned throughout the show on our website, so you can head over there to access anything that we've talked about today. Today's episode is part of the South Australian Drought Resilience Adoption and Innovation Hub project, Drought Resilience Practices in Mixed Farming Systems, which received funding from the Australian Government's Future Drought Fund. The South Australian Drought Resilience Adoption and Innovation Hub is one of eight hubs established across Australia through the Future Drought Fund. The SA Drought Hub brings together a dynamic network of primary producers, industry groups, researchers, government agencies, universities, agribusinesses, traditional owners and others to work towards a common vision to strengthen the drought resilience and preparedness of farmers and regional communities in South Australia. Thanks for listening to The Prosperous Farmer, a MacKillop Farm Management Group production. You can rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube at MacKillop Group or check out our website at www.mackillopgroup.com.au. Thanks for listening and see you next time.